Keith, what day of the week is it? Philosophy Friday! It's Philosophy Friday, and today we're in part two of our discussion of Aja Y. Martinez's essay on critical race theory, uh, theory, its origins, history, and importance to the discourses and rhetorics of race. And man, there is so much to talk about here. And uh, I want to start us off by uh, just kind of summarizing what we've covered so far in this essay. And she basically has said so far, that the overarching issue that the Michael Brown shooting and racialized divisions in perceptions of that shooting illustrates is, quote, uh, attitudes and belief that we as a nation and people are in an era of post-raciality and the colorblindness is the preferable racial attitude to maintain. So critical race theory is this response, this clapback to kind of Martin Luther King's colorblindness, being judged not on the basis of your skin, but on the content of your character. And critical race theory comes along and say, nah, that's not enough to account for all these inequalities that we see. And they're gonna give you statistics that show there's inequity here, inequity here, inequity here. And whereas the white people are gonna say, well, that's just because black culture doesn't value education or black culture is infatuated with guns and violence and hip hop music or whatever. And they're going to use those things to say, it's not actually about race, it's about these other things. Critical race theory wants to say, no, race is a major factor. As you said, it's this omnipresent central factor. And they want to apply that to understanding and accounting for these problems. So let's talk about colorblindness. And I, I want to uh, um, kind of take a step back and say, what does the Bible teach about colorblindness? Uh, Keith, can you give just kind of your initial uh, thoughts on colorblindness in the culture, what they mean by it, mm -hmm. and then let's see if we can get into how the Bible might interact with it, because obviously the Bible doesn't use the word colorblindness anywhere. Yes, yeah, so I think maybe in simplistic terms, you think of Lady Justice with their eyes being covered and just weighing the scales. And yeah. so, in theory, kind of the idea of being colorblind is the person before you is not a, a yellow person, black person, brown person, white, blah, blah, uh, but they're just an individual whose character and whose actions and those sorts of things, you're going to judge them based upon that and their performance. And kind of like that we're in a meritocracy yes. in a way yep. that we're going to uh, you know judge someone based upon their works and their efforts and, and what they've done and not based upon them being white, black, male, female, straight, gay. Um, and so, you know, to obviously expand colorblindness beyond just the color thing, but we're going to begin to kind of see the world in a way of almost just like, uh, yeah, just humans. You know what I mean? You're just interacting with humans and you're yeah. not interacting with a Norwegian or a, a Nigerian. You're just interacting with humans and you're judging them based upon their humanity and not any other kind of maybe secondary, I don't know if that's the right words, characteristic of them, their whiteness, blackness, or whatever it may be. So. Yeah, and that's kind of been the kind of ideal or virtue, like that's impartiality we think is that's a good thing um, and would classic liberalism have anything to say about that would they support this kind of idea yeah and they would they would kind of kind of be the undertones of it because uh, you know, once you kind of separated from Christianity what you kind of did was have universal man uh, even though that you know say like our founding fathers they're, they're endowed by a creator with all in uh, all men are created by their what? <laughs> all men are made by their maker. I don't even. I can't even quote it. I they're can't made by their maker. Made by their maker, but um, and they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And so there's an idea that there's a creator. All men are created equal. And so then you mentioned in the last episode that uh, Martin Luther King. We we didn't basically tease out the implications of that right. And now we're gonna make you pay due that you no, know, we're all equal. And so that would very much be this enlightenment thing that we're all just kind of that 
Yeah, and even the idea of equal opportunity that we all just come in the world. Anybody can be president. Anybody can be LeBron James. Anybody yeah. can be, you can be whatever you want. We're all equal. We can all get there. And so that's, that's almost like the height of the enlightenment that like we just, we have this faculty called reason. Yeah. And through this use of reason, the, 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 there, there are no limits to what we can do. So Yeah. So I want to use uh, an example from scripture that isn't uh, racial, but you might say it is another social construct and we'll call it class. Okay, so uh, J- uh, the book of James is going to talk about the, r- the rich man is the one who's, you know, op- oppressing you in general. And in, in scripture, uh, riches are this uh, blessing from God, but also the rich tend to always be the bad guys, right? In, in, uh-huh. in general, yeah. unless you're like Solomon, but things go wrong. There's even laws against him amassing too much wealth. And uh, I think it's Psalm 62, where uh, it says, um, you know, uh, riches are deceitful. Do not, uh, if riches increase, do not put your trust in them. Uh, there's a, a prayer in, I think, Proverbs 30, or maybe it's 31, where it says, you know, make me neither poor nor rich, mm-hmm. lest I'm poor and I steal, or I'm rich and I forget God. And so uh, there, there's this law that comes up multiple times in Scripture. Uh, I'm thinking of Exodus 22, maybe it's in Leviticus 19 as well, but it's consistent where it says, uh, you shall be impartial in your judgments. You shall not favor a poor man or favor a rich man taking a bribe. So bribes is one of the the common other evils in in scripture. And so in in that sense, uh, our judgments are to be blind to the social construct of class. And I think we'd want to say analogously, when you're do, uh, when you're making those kinds of judgments that Scripture is talking about, that where you're supposed to ignore rich or poor, in the, in that in those cases we are to be colorblind as well. So whether you're black or white or whatever color you are, Scripture is going to say whatever judgment you make needs to have not factor that in. Critical race theory wants to say no. It's, in fact, a central factor, one of the major factors. Now, we also want to say that Scripture gives different laws for different even classes or kinds of people. So, uh, 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 Israel was slaves to Egypt, and God actually is going to tell them once upon a time uh, that they need to treat the Egyptians with with respect and in some sense kindness that Egypt's actually going to be saved one day uh, the prophets are going to prophesy about and and the however slaves that are non-israelites are given a, a different law than slaves who are israelites so we we would want to say god is obviously not being partial in the sense of committing the sin of partiality, but he is making a distinction based on certain factors. And so the question I think we want to ask ourselves when it comes to something like colorblindness is say, when and where should should we be colorblind? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think one of the examples would be, you know, when we're all in the kingdom of God, all singing the same song, every tribe, tongue, you don't have every tribe, tongue, nation without there being different pigments that you're all, wow, mm-hmm. um, just like the rainbow is different colors, it's nice to see different colors. There's beauty in the the diversity. And to be blind to that would actually be blind to the glory of God. It'd yeah. be almost like saying, I want the whole world to be black and white instead of in color, and I want to live my life that way. Well, God would say, you're putting your color blindness in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. I want you to enjoy the beauties of blue and green and orange and red and all these colors, enjoy that, that, that enriches your life. 
And, and that's what diversity, people who talk a lot about diversity, try to frame it as. It's just this beautiful celebration uh, thing of, uh, of, of, color, different, yeah. of, uh, of different colors. And it's like, well, of course, yeah, that's great. I like to eat at a Mexican restaurant uh, 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 and a Japanese restaurant and a Chinese restaurant. And we, and we celebrate it. And we looked last time that critical race theory says, nah, that actually dehumanizes. It uh, doesn't dignify uh, black bodies or these, these different cultures. And so uh, colorblindness is one of these things that we need to think through uh, from a biblical perspective and know where and when to apply it. Now they're going to say colorblind racism is best characterized by the combination of prejudice, discrimination, and institutional inequality. I forget what page this is on, but this is a really key sentence. This is, this is how they characterize colorblind racism. And Keith, what would we want to say about prejudice, discrimination, and then the last one, institutional inequality? What's what's going on there? The uh, Well, as Christians, we're, you know, by their standards and by our culture standards, I think we're going to always be considered prejudice and discrimination. Um, so even Jesus, when he tells us to judge by a righteous standard, like, and so there's nothing wrong with being prejudiced. There's nothing wrong with being discriminatory, uh, assuming you're your like, standard is righteous. The, the, right, the righteous, yeah, God's righteous standard. And so if you have uh, God's law and you're studying God's law, so, you know, when we oppose homosexuality, um, yes, we're being prejudiced and yes, we're discriminating, uh, but we're discriminating based upon a righteous uh, grounds and a righteous decree rather than an unrighteous standard of just saying, oh, well, anybody can do whatever they want. So as Christians, uh, we are warned pretty clearly about being prejudiced against the poor. Um, like you mentioned James, also Leviticus, I think it's 19, where it talks about, you know, you, you, when you go to court, you're not to favor the rich or the poor. So there are, like you were saying, I think laid it out really well. And if I could just back up, though, a little bit with what you're saying there, with, with part of where we're going to differ with the critical race theory people is because they want our knowledge to be so socially constructed that even anytime we make a uh, colorblind judgment. It's 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 really just the fruit of uh, of kind of a socially constructed knowledge of the world. Whereas as Christians, we we are operating with the assumption that we can know real truth, real justice, real right, real yeah. wrong. There's an objective standard, not a constantly changing, changing. one based on our racial makeup. Yeah, and uh, even as they end up defining race, but we'll, we'll get that. Um, but the the place where we're gonna you know probably get the most pushback, and I think something as Christians we need to really lay out well is the idea of institutional inequality. So e yeah. equality is God right now. Our culture's God is basically equality. And what the Enlightenment would have wanted, which I think as Christians we can generally affirm, uh, but even, even this, I, I feel like needs a, a page of nuance, which is kind of frustrating. We can generally affirm the uh, people's freedom of opportunity. You know what I mean? Like in, in very broad, generic terms. Yeah. Um, but where the critical race theory want to say, so so if, you, if, if we all were you know sitting in a room, we should say everybody should have equal opportunity. There'd almost be a sense of like, yay, almost, Universally, everybody in there could almost say that. But what the critical theorists and the leftists in general and the Marxists want to say is that due to social conditions, no two people actually have the same opportunity. So you think of a kid being born into a poor family, and I can't remember the exact statistic, but let's just say he's exposed to 200 words uh, on average over the course of his first 10 years of life, where a child born into an educated family, he's hearing 10,000 different words. And so just the expanse of that child's experience hearing 10,000 words as opposed to 200 words um, their opportunities are not equal. You yeah. know what I mean? And, uh, you know, LeBron James' kids, uh, they have a lot more opportunity than, say, some poor white kid in Appalachia. And so so there is no 
Uh, but where the left and the Marxists want to kind of go is that what we have to do for everybody to have this opportunity is, is, is try to give everybody the exact same environment. And and that's the place that, like, again, we're just going to keep saying you just can't get there. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, it's, an, it's an impossibility. It, it's an impossibility because, we're, we're, one, we're not God. God didn't make that world. Two, even if you're a Darwinist, that's just not the way yeah. 3.8 billion years it of evolution runs counter runs. to Darwinism. That's that's the that's the funny thing, right? Yeah, and, and so so you almost just want to ask them like like, and it's kind of interesting to my knowledge. I I know nowhere that discuss met metaphysics. Yeah. You just kind of hop into the issues, and um and so that institutional inequality is something that we as Christians, uh, I think probably need to think through more thoroughly because I'm very comfortable saying I don't care about institutional inequality. That that's normal to reality. So even at the very beginning of creation, you had hierarchy. Uh, you know, obviously Yahweh is the creator. Depending on how you want to understand, let us make man our image. You have uh, you know, so Colossians 1, powers and principalities and rulers and authorities. Yeah. Uh, Adam and Eve, you had a hierarchy there. Ch uh, parents with children. So as Christians, we fully affirm a hierarchical uh, order, yeah. um, and therefore it's not equal. Um, the sun rules the day. Yeah. The moon rules <laughs> the night. night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so even there, and then that plays out through the rest of Scripture when, you know, uh, Joseph bows down to the, the sun and the moon, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or, or the sun and moon come and bow down to him. And so, so those things all play out. So as Christians... And we have to think through our rhetoric because they are very uh, – like reading this article, she's very good with her rhetoric. As Christians, we have to think through our rhetoric of articulating to a culture that it's God is equality to come along and say, oh, your God's a failure. Um, because where they think we're failing, tying back into everything else, is where we're failing in this institutional equality is because I'm selfish. You know what I mean? Because I as a white man want to advance my own – cause and selfishness, that's why I'm supporting institutional inequality. It's not because I think that's just the way nature is. Yeah. And that's where you end up having a rub. So I've been on campus and I've been told, I can't wait for your type to die out. You know what I mean? Because they think we can get there yeah. if there wasn't people like me just holding us back. And so we need, we. that's a place I think we should maybe camp out and try to figure out rhetorically uh, articulating to people who disagree with us. It is just the nature of the beast and this ideal world where everybody just comes in a world with Five hundred thousand dollars and uh, you know same vocabulary and you know I'm I'm five six I'm just not going to be a center of the NBA team you know what yeah. I mean and and I can lament and wail that all I want but like I'm just kicking against reality and so so the the quicker you're able to accept it I feel like the more you're able to order yourself in the world but I, I think that that's a place um, that I think even when I'm on campus evangelizing I lose a lot of people because they yeah equality's God is the only yeah. way to put it so what I've what I thought is really interesting is. Uh, when I tend to think about the guys that I talk to in counseling situations and what I would tell them. So they come in, I have all of these problems or whatever, and I think of what kind of biblical counsel and advice I give them. Let's say they have been abused or there's been some victimization where they're a, they're a true, genuine victim. Okay, well, we can, we can lament with them, but I never let them use that as an excuse to not obey God. Right. And and the the push for empathy is this push to let that victim status excuse them from anything else. And then they're going to say, oh, you think America is this meritocracy. Mm -hmm. Right. And we say, no, but but I believe that God is sovereign that God in his providence ordains all things. And it's like the doctrine of providence and what scripture says about counting it all joy when you fall into various trials and, tr and trusting God, God will exalt the lowly, 
He's he hears the cry of the poor, the widow. He hears the cry of the worker who doesn't get paid or who's being taken advantage of. And then Paul's going to say, if you're a slave, serve your master, not as <laughs> to man, but as unto the Lord. And so it's like, no matter what circumstance, however unjust it is, the Bible keeps it very real with you. Mm-hmm. It just assumes that, yeah, you're in this sinful, broken world, that your original sin is you're responsible for in your original sin because you're connected to Adam. And in that place, there's actually hope, but it's going to start with you actually starting with gratitude, Mm -hmm. thanking God for what you, what what you do have and not building a whole theory or victim mentality based on envy, jealousy, and, and lust, Mm -hmm. right? Lust for what other people have. And that, I think, is the kind of demonic or sinful spirit that is behind a lot of the woke church, uh, critical race theory kind of movement. Mm-hmm. It's not driven by actual love for justice. It's driven by vengeance. It's driven by envy. It's driven by greed and rivalry. And you see this in the examples that they use where they really show their hands. So, uh, uh, She's going to quote Bonillas Silver, Bonillas Silver, who says that abstract liberalism is the frame that involves the use of ideas associated with political liberals such as choice and individualism. And so, as you said in the in the last episode, this isn't talking about like your lefty progressive today. This is talking about classic uh, liberalism and this idea of liberalist freedom uh, of choice and individualism. This frame is used to oppose affirmative action policies. So they're, they're kind of divided uh, between themselves on, in some ways, uh, let's say, just call them Democrats, some who want affirmative action and some who don't. Uh, some would say that's tokenism, right? And some would say, no, this is going to get us to the uh, uh, institutional equality that we want. And then the example he cites kind of reveals his hand in opposition to affirmative action. He says, it ignores the fact of underrepresentation. This is a word you're going to hear all the time about representation matters. Representation matters. It ignores the fact of underrepresentation in most good jobs, schools, and universities. And so here is just really obvious that outcome of representation is the measuring rod that governs everything. So you're wondering what standard are they using for calling something unjust? Well, they're going to say it's this uh, lack of representation or underrepresentation in most good jobs. And just like you don't see the feminists picketing to try to get jobs working for coal mines, yeah, the coal mines and construction workers who are overwhelmingly male <laughs> spaces, mm-hmm. right? No, what do they want? They want to be CEOs and CFOs, and then they want paid uh, leave, and they want paid maternity leave all the way through. They want to totally equalize and then account for even their own, like, against their own biology, right? Yeah, you think about that. That's, that's, I mean, I'm going to have a baby. I need nine months. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you should should pay me. Yeah. Because, and it's like... I thought it's your body, your choice, uh, or is it not now? Mm-hmm. It's like, does, does and so it's this idea that like your, um, they want to be individuals when it suits them, but they want to be connected and everything's communal when it yeah. suits and, them. And, and, that, and that's a bizarre, that, and that's part of that bizarre institutional inequality that they think is there, that because women get pregnant and they're going to be out for nine months or, and then for beyond, well, not necessarily nine months, but beyond the, 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 
baby coming to term and they're yeah. out for at least three months, whatever it is. Um, that, that that's a place where like see the the environment's not equal. And so yeah. you have this institutional so even but even that reality of like she's pregnant, that's an almost like an institution <laughs> of like inequality. You know what I yeah. mean? And the man can't get pregnant. So there's no one thinks about that yeah. inequality that he can't biology get is by definition uh, asymmetric. Uh-huh. Right? It's it men it's just saying men and women are different. Yeah. And and that's why we're saying critical race theory is fighting against reality. We said this uh, at one of our talks, the racist, sexist, anti-gay thing, where if you're a Christian, mm -hmm. it's wonderful to have reality on your side. Because when you do things God's way, it actually works. Critical race theory is kicking against the goads of nature, of essence, and it's trying to redefine their existence and redefine their essence, but they're never going to be able to do it and so on and on we go until whatever the next kind of critical theory thing is gonna gonna be. Yeah, and, and kind of uh, the idea of representation. Um, I, I, I was trying to back it up a little bit in this article, but in, on page twenty, uh, she makes the comment. However, people of color, color have experiential knowledge from having lived under such systems of racism and oppression, and thus have developed methodologies that serve as both coping mechanisms and as ways to raise awareness. Uh, but the point. The, the idea that people uh, one of the key things we're always going to bring in is the experiential knowledge and that's and that's where you know my trigger point on any Twitter or Facebook <laughs> is as a you know what I mean and, yeah. and so, so the minute you preface your as if that intersection and that experience somehow and obviously we do think there's experiential knowledge like I'm a doctor I can do heart surgery. Okay, yeah. I want you doing heart surgery. You have yeah, experience. This is my knowledge. lived experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you're, you're able to do that but, but this idea of experiential knowledge that therefore I'm able to you know identify systems of oppression or identify certain things where by just by my experiences um, now, now obviously we can step back and maybe think there's a grain of truth to some of it that like yeah if someone's being grossly offensive and you know we're, can't think of an example but yeah we're just being cruel teenage boys and someone comes in from the outside and you're like oh wow that's we didn't realize we were being cruel teenage boys um but when it comes to things like justice and that's where you know we always have to go back to scripture and understand this is where it comes from like the, the, someone's lived experience is not determine what justice is someone's lived experience doesn't determine what righteousness is or what the good is um and so it, it doesn't give you any privilege to speak up against something in and of itself that you have this experiential knowledge yeah. uh, in the way that they're using it. Obviously, like a mechanic, you want him to be experienced. You want a doctor to be experienced. But the way they're using knowledge to be able to speak of systems, yeah. um, we're going to want to push back. But that's where the representation, that's why we need women on the Supreme Court. We need women writing the Constitution, we, women writing the Bible and blah, 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 or, or all these different things. Because yeah. if we don't have that, we're, we're missing out on their vital knowledge that yeah. otherwise, that a white guy can't have. Um, yeah. So One of the things I just thought of is uh, I'm studying a bunch of the Old Testament case laws. And there are, there are times where even in the sacrificial system, you're supposed to offer, say, a, a male goat or a, a bull or something like that. It says, but if you're poor and can't afford that, then God, then God says, okay, the, the priest will say, yeah, bring this. It's two turtle doves mm -hmm. or, something, or something like that. Uh, and there's times where it's up to the judge's discretion to take into account certain factors and then the Bible gives, uh, it prescribes certain penalties. It sometimes gives max penalties. And then it says, so you don't strike a man with more than th uh, 40 stripes, you know? And then they said, okay, 39 is, we, we're not even gonna get close to, to 40. Get, uh, but that assumes that you could give them five stripes or 10 stripes. And one of the ways you would make that judgment is, okay, God has given you his standard. 
Then say you take into account, okay, this wasn't a high-handed crime or sin. They were kind of caught up in their environment. They were manipulated by it. So, so scripture actually does have a place for taking into account your lived experience, but that lived experience doesn't dictate the standard. It just gives the judge discretion, just like we have degrees of murder, first, second, mm-hmm. third degree. The Bible kind of does the same thing. Like that, that whole idea of there's different uh, high-handed sins versus mm-hmm. sins of deception uh, is a biblical idea. Eve, when she sinned, was deceived. Adam clearly knew what he was doing and the punishment for him was much harder. So say people always want to talk about uh, 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 execution penalty for abortion, right? Because we, we want to say, yeah, abortion mm-hmm. is murder. However, if, if it's a, a girl who's grown up and has been sold this propaganda that a fetus isn't a baby and at a certain amount of weeks is fine and then uh, she gets pregnant and then her parents are putting all this pressure on her, well, I think it would be actually in some ways unjust or heartless to to just execute mm-hmm. this person who was deceived. Mm-hmm. It's like even God makes provision for you to to execute, say, like the abortion doctor or the parents. But actually, there's a sense in which the woman is being manipulated. Mm-hmm. So we want to say uh, God gives us way better categories for dealing with the kind of hard parts of life, the gray mm-hmm. areas of life, which is, I think, because we haven't talked about that, critical race theory kind of allows, says, hey, but what about all this stuff? What about my lived experience? What about all these cases of injustice? And because Christians haven't thought deeply about how God's law would apply, they, we can, they, they're just borrowing from people who are actually trying to account mm-hmm. for all of those issues. And and even, like, you think of Solomon being having wisdom in the application of judgment. And, and I think in very broad terms, even as I think you're just kind of striking at it, that we, we kind of lack wisdom as a church in dealing with a lot of stuff because we're either, uh, yeah, fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom, and so there has to be that component of uh, men who are basically trained in wisdom uh, and asking God for wisdom to kind of call forth these judgments. And, I, and so, we, yeah, we're kind of stuck in a in kind of a flat fundamentalism that's afraid of the law in some ways, but then heavily legalistic in others. And so, yeah, what they're trying to do here, I think what some of the critical race theory people are trying to do is they – because because they live in God's world, they're always kind of borrowing strands strands of truth. They just end up perverting it. So this this idea that your lived experience dictates all things is uh, completely erroneous. Yeah, uh, I want to briefly touch on the kind of I would actually say the myth of equal opportunity. So often you hear I don't know if it's Thomas Sowell who said you know uh, liberals tend to think in terms of equal outcome, conservatives tend to think in terms of equal opportunity. And, and we would want to say, as, as you mentioned earlier, even the concept of equal opportunity, which, which we would kind of be more in that camp, uh, you have to qualify that mm-hmm. severely. And uh, if you think of just like, let's say you need to hire someone, because that's what they're talking about. Good jobs uh, at, uh, and good positions in schools and universities. And they're going to bring up the Derrick Bell hiring. So Harvard, uh, Derrick Bell, this uh, great scholar in, in their uh, minds, He's going to go over to Oregon or something, mm-hmm. and then yeah, he left Harvard like in '81. Yeah, and they wanted a black man to replace him. Yeah, so. and then and they said, well, there isn't someone, I guess, kind qualified. of qualified. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, you could imagine. Let's just take this example that we need to hire someone to be, you know, the secretary downstairs, um, and you think would it be kind of 
classism to hire the person with the better resume, like you said, the higher word count. Maybe they, we, we ask them, how many words can you type per minute? Okay, this person can type 100 words per minute. This person types 20 words per minute. And the reason is because they had no access growing up to a computer. Now, what we would do is we would, I think we would try to hire the person who's, you know, well-groomed, uh, uh, you know, hygienic. And it's like, okay, what if this person didn't have access to a clean shower or they couldn't afford to go get a, a nice suit for the job interview kind of thing? So those are real, real disadvantages that would really affect whether you get the job or not. And the question is, what mechanism should we use to try to level the playing field and where they want something like affirmative action to be a government imposed quota, right? You need, you have diversity quotas. We, we would want to say as Christians, um, so, so I know a guy in Florida who gives like showers and stuff for the homeless, or maybe you've seen those, oh, they'll do like a Haircut. free, yeah, yeah, haircuts and makeups and grooming. But, and so the mechanism there and in scripture is under the category of charity, mm -hmm. uh, of freely. And that can only happen in a society that is a Christian society that, that actually has a reason to do that. And where they want this kind of forced affirmative action charity, what does that create? Well, it, it actually creates resentment and the whole tokenism mm -hmm. thing. Cause, cause then they get hired and then they're like, Oh, you just hired me because, um, yeah. I, I, or because you needed to meet your diversity quota. And if you want to talk about what's dehumanizing and undignifying, I think that is it, mm -hmm. right? That is, I think, affirmative action type diversity policies are some of the most dehumanizing things. I mean, I want to be hired because... I, I'm, I am good at the job or, or could excel in it. And if there's a better person than me, then, then, then they should get it. Yeah. And, and I hope and could, and this is where we can try to help people to in, increase their education, increase their skills. But this is across the board, just like you worked for American Express. Like I couldn't go work for American Express. I don't know anything, <laughs> anything about anything in uh -huh. American Express. Uh -huh. And so what, is that some... Uh, you, you can imagine you can make affirmative action and this equal, uh, equal even opportunity and just uh, do it with other things besides race. You yeah. do it with class. You could do it between ethnicity, right? You could do it between height, mm -hmm. right? And you think about even like in, uh, uh, they're going to talk about how blacks have, uh, black women die in, w in giving birth at a crazy way higher rate. Uh, Kendi's going to say that life itself is racist because <laughs> black people have an earlier uh, tend to die like four or five years earlier than than white people, and I like there's a level of consistency there that <laughs> right. like that you know what I mean like yeah. when that's your hermeneutic you're like ah even life is against us yeah you know no. I mean? like, like we die on average four years <laughs> earlier like there's a level of consistency you can only applaud at that point yeah. so. and then, and then and they're trying to account for well why. Is that so? Let's say all of the stats are true. Mm -hmm. Critical race theory is trying to, in some ways, account for why is life so hard? Mm -hmm. Why is the world so broken? And they're offering kind of a compelling narrative that is kind of empowering in the sense of 
it, it, it uh, gives you a framework for understanding why the man is against mm-hmm. you and why things have not gone the way, why you're still living yeah. in a certain condition. And that's the appeal. Yeah. Right? It's, it's almost like a Roman six. Like, like whiteness is kind of the, the, the rule and reign of sin and death. You know what I mean? And then you get kind of woke and then you're kind of snap out of it. And now you're kind of struggling against the old man, the old yeah. system. Um, so it's almost, yeah, it, it's, it's an alternative gospel. Yeah. Uh, r- really. So. Yeah, I think that's what I was, uh, probably my big takeaway from this essay, uh, sympathetically, is that critical race theory is trying to account for the hardness of the world without God. Mm -hmm. So these people don't know God, or some of them have self-consciously thrown off God as one of those, you know, whiteness, uh, white supremacy concepts. Yeah, because even Christianity is colonized. So any any Christianity in the West is now a colonized white supremacist, which supports our, you know, uh, there's verse in there about slavery, and you guys yep. had slavery, so it's a way to condone yourself. And so even the, even religion becomes uh, about whiteness. So yeah, so at, at that level, I think I can I can sympathize with their frustration with the way things are, right? The futility of the world. Just like we can, you know, I don't like seeing people die. Uh, when I'm on my phone, on my scrolling through my Twitter feed, right? Mm-hmm. It's like I, I don't want to see anyone yeah. get get killed. And if I was a black person, constantly being shown images of other black people getting killed, that that would that that would be majorly affecting my my mind, the way I would interact, the way I think about myself, and, and so at that level, like. We need to be sympathetic to the way that they are being manipulated by the the way media is, by the way uh, this stuff is just so in your face now, mm-hmm. and then how it immediately becomes politicized, and and in that sense, it it does dehumanize whatever happened, right? Mm-hmm. So there's times where it's like, okay, you shouldn't have done that, and and now here's a person getting getting killed. But it's like, I don't want to see people die for for really any reason, yeah. right, if I don't have to. Uh-huh. And the only reason that God would ever put, you know, execution, execution is the one thing that is supposed to be public as a warning for, for what they're doing, where you know, this is just, this mm-hmm. person deserves to die. But it's like, war is a horrible thing. Just like soldiers go to Iraq and, and experience traumatic things. Yeah, it's going to affect you. So... Uh, a critical race theory kind of preys on that trauma. Mm-hmm. It preys on this, uh, the world is against me. And it's giving you a framework to say, yeah, we know. Mm-hmm. This is our lived experience. And here's here's a framework for uh, understanding it. Yeah. And almost just, it, you can constantly justify any bitterness, any resentment, any anger you have because you've, you've been put in a position of, uh, you know, you've been oppressed and you've been put in a position of subordination and there's a system there. Um, one thing I, I did want to just kind of back up a little bit, but kind of kind of tied in, I think, one of the, you know, why critical race theory? Um, and we maybe hit on this a little bit, but um, she writes, in the United States, uh, basically, many come away from this experience, basically, discussions on the civil rights uh, with the idea that racism as a term is defined as isolated, blatant acts of violence or discrimination towards individuals of color. Yeah. So you think of like some of the images we have of the civil rights movement of you know some uh, African Americans sitting at a uh, table and some people jumping spaghetti on their head, and it's like a blatant act of racism or someone hitting somebody up with an 
N-bomb. Um, and so those, they would want to see, that's liberalism's understanding of racism, that there's this, um, these blatant uh, yeah. acts. Whereas what critical race theory wants to say, and this kind of comes into the hedge, once you can grasp uh, concepts of hegemony and uh, their, their understanding of institutional that racism is really this kind of this seedbed backing underneath it. It's almost like a weird conspiracy theory. It's almost like there's a little element of like listening to Alex Jones a little bit with some of this stuff. Like Alex Jones is able to find a, a bad government. Or if you're, you're, you read some anarcho-capitalist stuff, they're always able to find status behind everything. You know what I mean? Everything goes back to the state. And so you give some people these crazy hermeneutics and they're able to get there uh, in every way. And then one of the other things that's kind of uh, wild in reading, and this kind of ties into the whole lived experience thing, was trying to get a clear definition of race and racism. And that's one of the things that they don't really give you and um, I, I don't know what page, but I end up looking up the original source. Um, but uh, it defines race as a, race as an unstable and decentered complex of meetings, constantly being transformed by political struggle. So our definition of race yesterday is going to be different today. It's going to be different yeah. twenty years from now. And that, that's why you don't feel like you can get a handle on any race discussions because in their um, concept, it's 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 unstable and decentered. So there is no substantive meaning to this concept of race and it goes on to say race is a concept that signifies and symbolizes social conflicts and interests by referring to different types of human bodies um although the concept of, of race invokes seemingly biologically based human characteristics so when we think of race we think of a very yeah. simplistic there's a white guy there's a black guy there's a yellow person uh so-called phenotypes selections of these particular human features for purposes of racial signification is always and necessarily a social and historical process. And so that idea of a social historical process, again, is, is just when you think of our knowledge, when you think of our understanding of race, when you think of anything, um, it's almost like this process thinking. Everything is in this process of becoming. So even race itself, there's nothing fixed. Everything's in a process of becoming. Yeah. Um, and so and even if you, yeah, it's just one of those things I think if I was to place myself in their shoes, um, I don't, I would have no confidence in anything I'm saying today. You know what I mean? It's almost like the, the, the ancient Greeks, all is flux and there is no stability. You never step in the same river twice. So you never have the same racial discussion twice because there is this constantly changing race. And yeah. and I think, like, once you realize that, I think it's one of the things that's helpful when we're often talking past each other is many of us have racism, I think they call it du jour, like the yeah. very blatant acts of racism. That's what we yeah. think of as racism. Whereas they're trying to say, nope, it's this whole system uh, sort of thing. And then yeah. once you realize... De facto yeah. racism. It, yeah. It, yeah, and then when you also have the element of, you know, you ask for a definition of race, at least the Enlightenment, right or wrong, they're going to try to give you a definition of race. Yeah. This is an unstable, decenter thing that changes with political struggle. So as a, as a struggle changes, so does the definitions of race. And that's where, you know, kind of tied into very explicit events, you have... Um, Trayvon Martin and who's the man that shot him? Uh, George Zimmerman. Yeah. Uh, and they identify George Zimmerman as white. So she, here, Aja Martinez is Latino, but George Zimmerman, who's Latino and a Jew, was identified as white for yeah. political purposes in that context. So, so for the political struggle, he's a white man now. And even NBC edited the clip to say a white guy or whatever. You know, I mean, they they edited it in a very explicit way to make it a, a white black thing. Yeah. Um, but then here you have other Latinos, Latinx people who where well, they will not it's fit. Latinx. Latinx. They will not be white for because what's you know being transformed by what's the political struggle at this point? And if we need the Hispanic person to be white 
they're going to be white. And if they're going to, if we need them to be a person of color because maybe they got shot or stuff like that, yeah. then they're going to be that. So, so this constant decentering and this constant instability, I think, makes the discussion relatively unfruitful. And I think it's, I think it's by design to, so, so you can always have, and and if you by your lived experience get to define what oppression is, then you're always in the driver's, you, then you're always in the privileged driver's seat of the discussion. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll stop there with part two, and then uh, we'll get into part three, defining uh, critical race theory uh, more precisely, and look at looking at the four premises that uh, Aja Martinez lays out. Until next time, peace.